Hello, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm a vice president here at Cato. And today we're having a book forum on this book, Campaign Finance and American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters. Uh, we're being joined today by our authors, which I will briefly introduce. David Primo is professor of political science and business administration and the Ani and Mark Gabrellian professor at the University of Rochester. In 2014, David created the Politics and Markets Project at the University of Rochester, which fosters education, research, and debate about the appropriate relationship between business and government in the 21st century, a very timely undertaking. Jeff Milo is professor of economics and chair of the Department of Economics at the University of Missouri. To my longtime friends, I say welcome to Cato and congratulations on your new book. I know how hard you guys have worked over several years on this, and it's delightful to see that it's appeared. I look forward to our conversation uh, about the book. But before that, let me uh, tell our attendees today that we're going to talk about the book, the three of us, for a while. Uh, and then we want to have questions. We really look forward to that, and I certainly the authors do. Uh, so you can submit your questions via our webpage, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And the hashtag for this is Cato Events, C-A-T-O-E-V-E-N-T-S, Cato Events. Uh, you can also visit Cato's event page to access additional materials, which, is, which are associated with this webcast. So let's get to it, gentlemen. Uh, it's, we're living in interesting times. And one of the things that, however, that is steady about our politics is that House Democrats have once again introduced H.R. 1, which is a sweeping, they do this uh, at the beginning of every new Congress. So there's some steadiness for us, some stability. Uh, the sweeping election reform bill includes new rules for federal campaign financing, and it includes public funding uh, of elections. Uh, the proponents of HR1 argue that reforms are needed to address the fact that our campaign finance system is awash in big money, allowing a wealthy special interest to rig our politics in their favor. So it's a version of the, it's the game is rigged argument. Proponents also claim that the reform is needed to restore trust in government. David, what does your research say about these claims, about big money in politics and the whole uh, subset of arguments supporting H.R. 1? Well, on the face of it, uh, these arguments would seem to have some merit. In our research, in our nationwide surveys, uh, we studied what we call the conventional wisdom about money in politics. So if you ask Americans, is there too much money in American politics? Are elective offices for sale to the highest bidder? Is the campaign finance system fundamentally corrupt? And so on, you get large majorities of the American people, uh, you know, three quarters of the American people agreeing with those statements. So there's a belief that there's something rotten in Washington. Uh, but on the other hand, if you dig a little bit deeper into their understanding of the campaign finance system, there is a much deeper and more profound cynicism about the process. And they understand that campaign finance reform isn't going to be the, the magic bullet that fixes American politics. If the events of the past week have showed us nothing, they've showed us, have showed us anything, they've showed us that 
the issues we have in American politics are not about money, right? They're, they're about something far deeper. Um, and so the public is skeptical. They're, they're skeptical that reforms will actually make a difference in practice. Um, so it's no surprise then that for the last four decades, um, we've seen attempts at campaign finance reform. Um, and as we show in our book, these attempts to reform the system have not meaningfully affected how Americans view their government. Um, Jeff, do you want to you want to add to that? Uh, yes. So um, you know, HR one is yet another round of what we've seen. You know, almost perennially that you know this campaign finance reform is going to fix everything, and whatever it is you're unhappy about uh, regarding American politics, it can be addressed through reform. It's a sort of magic wand that's going to you know, make everything rainbows and puppies and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi will skip down the street together and everything will be wonderful. Um, and the, this this idea that campaign finance reform is uh, desperately needed and will dramatically change American politics, it, it, it does, as Dave said, it fits with what we call a conventional wisdom among the public that uh, campaign spending drives electoral outcomes. Campaign contributions are like bribes. There's too much money in politics. The whole system is corrupt. You know, that very much is a conventional wisdom that's widely held among the public, many reformers and policymakers. But uh, after decades of doing research in this area, uh, one of the most striking things is that there are really two conventional wisdoms. Among those of us who study the role of money in politics, there's a much more uh, nuanced understanding of the role of money in politics, that campaign spending is, is not so influential in electoral outcomes, campaign contributions not so determinative of policy outcomes, et cetera. And, um, you know, for, for many years, we've, we've kind of uh, pushed uh, this, this uh, tried to bridge this uh, you know dichotomy here and try to inform the public and and often you know people in the audience will look at you askance that you know what are you saying the science doesn't back up what we all know and uh, and rather than try to explain the studies I think we hit upon a brilliant tactic in this book which was to conduct a survey of people like us who have been studying money and politics and one of the things that we demonstrate is that experts in this field have a very different view of the role of money in politics um, compared to the general public. And that's sort of a jumping off point that we talk about that in chapter one and then go into, well, why does the public think what it does? Why are they so cynical? And what does the sort of public ardor for reform really, really reflect? So, uh one of the great things about this book is all of those years of work uh, have produced a very focused book. And you say, because this book is about two questions, two questions. Do public, uh, do is the undue influence argument and public opinion about money and politics, all the views that people have about that, is it connected to reality? That's question one. 
Question two is, are changes in campaign finance law likely to change attitudes toward government? So these are the questions that this book's about. It's not about everything. It's not here, there, and everywhere. It's a very focused work. It will repay your time if you're interested in these questions and studying it because it's it's very well organized. I personally am going to take the a point of uh, order here to ask you about the thing that in a way interests me the most about campaign finance, because I think it's the most fundamental part of this. And it, it doesn't really have to, a lot to do with the data, which you said it, say in the book, there are basically two kinds of politics, conceptions of politics. You mentioned that campaign finance reform and all versions of it are uh, located in what you call a romantic conception of politics. And then you offer another one, uh, the public choice view, uh, we might call it. But before I continue going here, David, could you talk a little bit about these two really fundamental frameworks for these issues? Sure. The you know this this notion of uh, a romantic view of democracy uh, is is it's grounded in this idea that if we could simply remove influence, the wrong kind of influence and money from the political system, um, we would simply get a group of Americans coming together, working on issues, and figuring out the the, the correct policies. Um, and, and it's built on this illusion that there is some optimal policy out there uh, that we could find through democratic means um, if we simply got rid of the, again, the ugly parts of politics. Um, and the reality is that decades of social science research have taught us that uh, the outcomes you get in the democratic process are a function of the rules of the game. Um, well, what does that mean? That means that there is no right, will of the people um, in some in some grand sense uh, that we could find, we could divine if we simply had uh, the right, uh, if we simply got rid of the, the, the money in the political system. Right? Money, excuse me, outcomes are a function of rules. Um, and the public choice perspective understands that. Um, and moreover, this the public choice perspective uh, respects the fact that politicians also um, are not simply searching for right, some best public policy right? They've got their own interests. They've got their own incentives. Uh, and so it's it's far wiser to think about the political process um, in, in more realistic terms and, and, and think about the fact that, right, politics is, or democracy is messy. The outcomes are, are never going to be optimal in some uh, democratic sense, because that term really has no meaning in the context of democracy. Now, we could have conversations about, is there uh, is there a way to define optimality with reference to some normative standard? So an economist would be interested in efficiency, for instance. Um, but I bet if you surveyed uh, the, the House of Representatives, most of them are not going to have efficiency as uh, their, uh, their, their, their guide, their North Star, right? That's not going to be what they're looking toward, uh, looking to maximize. Um, and so again, you know, politics is messy, democracy is messy, and the romantic view of politics does us all a, a disservice, um, I would argue, I'm not sure if Jeff would agree, uh, because it creates an unrealistic standard for democracy to meet, which itself can be um, corrosive for uh, thinking about uh, what we can reasonably expect out of our democracy. Jeff, I have a question related to that. If, on the one hand, you mentioned the cynicism that you uh, many surveys have found, and it's included in your book, 
On the other hand, this romantic conception seems very widespread. How does the how do the two fit together? People have views about the way the world is, and yet they still think that this alternative is possible. There's, they still have romantic views that if we just did X or Y, then suddenly we would be in this. I don't understand how the two go together over time, maybe briefly, but not over time. So thanks. The uh, I mean, we refer to this as sort of a romantic notion of democracy because it literally is. It goes back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the romantic age and this notion that there is a a general will among the people that if we just, you know, if we could we could separate ourselves from the corrupting influences of reality, we would just all realize what the public interest is and and what the best policies are. And that view of democracy is is very unrealistic and it I think counterproductive because it envisions that um, citizens are fully informed and uh, and so we only need to just count who wants what. And there's a whole branch of um, of social choice literature that says that counting's not so easy, but we don't have time for an in-depth seminar on that. But this idea that you know people are intimately involved and well-informed about public policy and policy problems, it, it's just not true. People are rationally ignorant. They've got better things to do. And so you know, citizens are not like Athena, kind of you know, who was born from Zeus's head, fully armored. Citizens don't come into the political arena well informed. They need to be informed. They need to be organized. They need to be educated about the issues. And that's where special interest groups and political parties come in and the resources for these groups come in. Money in politics is the engine of democracy. It's the way in which ideas get advocated for and, and groups get mobilized. And it's how modern democracy works. And so as Dave said, you know, democracy, it, you know, we have these romantic notions, but in practice, it's very messy. I, you know, it's a little more like sex, I guess, in, in that it's, it's not bad, but it's not quite how it's portrayed in the movies. And, uh, and so, you know, it's there counterproductive. <laughs> it's counterproductive in the sense that if citizens have this unrealistic view that politics is not about arguments, that it's not about the competition for power, that there's not going to be fundamental disagreements and compromise and disappointment, then they're always going to be mistrustful of government and disappointed. And so campaign finance reformers, I mean, many of them have woken up to this, that by promising, you know, the stars and, and you know, that everyone is always disappointed when reforms are enacted, they didn't really deliver what was promised. So uh, like now Voyager, sometimes you have to be happy with the moon. Uh, so just a reminder to everyone listening out there or watching, uh, we're taking questions. You can do it on the major social media. The hashtag Cato events is what you need. And indeed we have a question that is really good. And I think uh, both in itself and in its context that goes to a lot of these issues. Uh, the question is, what about dark money or undisclosed contributions? Is that included in your research and your conclusions about it? Now, why? what makes it a super great question is, I can't tell you who asked that question because it was anonymous. And another <laughs> way of thinking about dark money is it's an anonymous contribution. We have an anonymous question. I, I doubt that uh, the questioner uh, thought there would be any retribution. I hope 
that uh, for asking the question. But it's an interesting thing, an anonymous question about anonymous money. Uh, David, what about that? So we focus primarily uh, in terms of the statistical analysis we do on campaign contribution restrictions. Uh, uh, we don't really focus on the question of um, an anonymous uh, anonymous speech or or what's called often called dark money, um, but we do ask questions about disclosure uh, that should uh, give the questioner a little bit of pause about uh, just exactly what we're looking for when we're asking for more information about uh, about donors. Uh, so you know when you ask Americans, do you support campaign finance disclosure? Uh, of your name, uh, every you know that's that's pretty well supported. Uh, but when you ask them whether they should have to disclose their name, their address, their occupation, their employer, as federal law requires for most contributions uh, above two hundred dollars, all of a sudden Americans get cold feet. They're fearful of uh, retribution. They're fearful of harassment. Uh, and so the 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 belief that that again that dark money is um, what's causing sort of negative perceptions of government um, that is not something we directly study in the book but indirectly there's good reason to think that excessive disclosure can actually be um, causing uh, uh, causing concerns in, in in the political system. Uh, moreover, um, we're, we're in the process of looking at the effects of independent spending, of which dark money would be uh, would be a subset um, in, in the in the electoral process. And thus far, again, we haven't found um, in a more direct test. We haven't found yet any evidence that uh, restrictions on 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 or, or increased disclosure of outside spending um, is somehow going to meaningfully move the needle on um, on trust in government. Um, so, you know, dark money uh, is, you know, the latest in a series of targets from reform by reformers uh, on the system. You know, 20 years ago when Jeff and I first started working on this stuff together, it was corporate PACs. And so it's actually nice to see corporate PACs back in the news uh, in the last day or so. They'd sort of fallen by the wayside. Dark money became the new evil in American politics. Uh, but, you know, I, I again, my sense is if you wiped out all the dark money in, in the political system tomorrow, uh, I don't think much would change in terms of how Americans perceive the process, uh, but we're going to take it to data. We're going to see what we can find. Um, Jeff, I don't know if you had anything else to, to add yep. to that. I do. I do. You know, uh, uh, I think Dave undersold the book a little bit. Uh, dark money is a concern post Citizens United. And, um, you know, our book is really the first, I mean, other people have looked at public opinion about money and politics. Uh, ours is the first major treatise that does this after Citizens United and examines a fair amount of data post Citizens United. So Citizens United uh, struck down a number of state laws that restricted independent expenditures, whether by corporations or uh, unions or other groups. And so we are able to examine in the book whether restrictions on uh, independent expenditures have any impact on the appearance of corruption. And, and what we find is, if anything, um, it, it, it's the opposite of what people think. There's a little bit of an increase in trust and confidence in government in the post-Citizens United era, controlling for other factors. So there's um, really no scientific evidence 
that independent expenditures writ large and therefore dark money have the kind of nefarious effects on public trust and confidence in government or the appearance of corruption that is often uh, uh, you know, assumed. Well, it's striking that we're having this book forum today uh, in the, a book about campaign finance and American democracy. Just before we came on, we read about the death of Sheldon Adelson. Now, uh, you may or may not know who Sheldon Adelson is. He's one of the largest contributors to the Republican Party over the last, certainly the last decade or so. Uh, he's a figure that's often mentioned uh, uh, he and he works outside the normal contribution system uh, because he's given millions of dollars to parties and to candidates. Uh, so Mr. Adelson died this morning, uh, which he was 87, which uh, helped. One thing I recall about him uh, is one of those uh, little stories that uh, I think tells the truth, but it's not very exciting, which was one of uh, Mr. Adelson's or Sheldon Adelson's uh, advisors was asked about uh, all of his campaign finance. And the advisor said, you know, Sheldon knows that when he gives all this money to the politicians, they're not really going to do what he wants or, or they're not going to do what he wants if it's not in their interest. Uh, but what can you do? That's the, and of course, the other point to be made, uh, and I, before I go to a question that really gets to this, uh, is, uh, Sheldon Adelson, in perhaps his most famous contribution was he gave $10 million to the primary campaign of President Gingrich. Uh, my point being, there was no President Gingrich and the $10 million did not. Randy's question is, uh, what is the evidence about uh, how contributions affect elections? Do the top uh, givers actually determine are the elections bought and sold, as we're told? And as you mentioned, Senator Warren uh, talked about during the presidential primaries. Uh, what is the evidence on elections and money uh, uh, and how the, it affects it? Uh, David? Well, you know, it, 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 that's, that, that notion of elective offices being for sale to the highest bidder, it, it, as I mentioned, I think at, at the beginning of, the, of, of this uh, webcast, you know, that's one of the questions we asked Americans. And we said, you know, are, you know, are elective sales offices for sale to the highest bidder? Over 80%, about 80% of the Americans agreed with that statement, you know, overwhelming majority. Uh, but our experts that we surveyed, that Jeff mentioned that we surveyed, under 20%, believe that that's the case based on the scientific evidence. Um, in reality, elective offices are not for sale to the highest bidder. Um, and I think Jeff can can speak pretty well to the this, this notion of um, what's called declining marginal utility um, of, of campaign spending. So I'll, I'll leave that to him um, in a moment. But I think the this myth that if you just spend money, you will win an election, right? And that it's just about writing checks uh, misses the fact that you need to have a good product. This is sort of like advertising uh, advertising a product. Advertising is only going to get you so far. Spending money on a campaign is only going to get you so far. You actually have to have a good product. Uh, Michael Bloomberg right, might be exhibit A for this, spending a billion dollars uh, and not having much um, to show for it. Jeff, what do you think about uh, the elections argument? So uh, yeah, you can tell I'm the economist. I would call it diminishing marginal productivity of campaign spending. And just as an example of that, I mean, take our most recent election. 
I mean, how many of us really think that if Trump had spent another million dollars, it would suddenly change our opinion of Trump and that it would dramatically affect the election? And, you know, so at the margin where there's well-known candidates and you've, you know, that's what happens in a political race with endorsements by parties and candidates are already spending money at the margin, variation in campaign spending doesn't have much effect on electoral outcomes. That means, importantly, that candidates aren't that grateful for these, in most jurisdictions, limited contributions that they get from supporters. And so uh, related the, the kind of comparison of the survey between the public and experts in, in money and politics that we do, we ask people whether campaign contributions are like bribes. And it's on the order of 80, 90% uh, of respondents think in the general public think campaign contributions are like bribes. And, and let's be clear here, um, if, when you're doing survey research, if you were to ask people, are you doing a survey, you wouldn't get 80, 90% agreement. So, I mean, that's really an amazing uh, amount of consensus among the public. However, among experts, it's more like, you know, 15% of the experts say that campaign contributions are like bribes. And one of the things we note in our book is these experts are primarily in academia. And so they're, you know, they're a bit of a pro-reform group uh, to start with. Um, now, you know, that's more about the kind of transactional relationship between the wealthy and the outcomes in politics. And I think some are concerned that, you know, sort of the system overall is such that the concerns of the wealthy are better represented than the concerns of average citizens. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of yeah. literature on that. Now, in part, that makes sense. Wealth and power are complements, you know, like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, when, when, when celebrities are involved in politics because they're wealthy and they've got free time and they, they think they're gonna do something important with their lives, similarly for corporate leaders. And, uh, and so it's not surprising that, you know, Joe Sixpack isn't quite as involved in politics as, as many wealthy people. But it turns out that, uh, you know, within political districts, the preferences of wealthy people in those districts are highly correlated with the preferences of others. And so uh, it's not so obvious that there is this, what political scientists sometimes say, that the uh, Democratic choir has a, uh, um, you know, a sort of a, a pitch more toward the affluent. So, David, let me ask a, a follow-on question before going back to uh, our watchers. Um, in 2016, it's often noted that Donald Trump uh, raised a great deal less money than Hillary Clinton, and that was a, a major and important fact. Uh, however, he got a lot of attention and obviously won the election, but a lot of it was free TV time. Right. I've seen estimates and you can correct me on this, but I've seen estimates that the TV time he got by being covered uh, by because, uh, was about two billion dollars. I mean, very large sums. But of course, uh, he was covered because there was a payoff on the other end. He brought uh, audiences to these television networks. And of course, he was running for president. Um, so. It, uh, it's, it's striking. It's po is it possible that campaign contributions, so Trump was a populist, right? And a lot of people don't like that populism, particularly this week. But it could be that, uh, is it possible that the system is actually pushed away from populism in a way? Because the other way to run is to appeal to large audiences and get free TV time. And that 
contributions themselves are going to be uh, less like that. They're an alternative to free free television time. David, there's a lot. There's a lot it's in a that. There's question. a lot in. No, there's a lot in that question about sort of the, the 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 this idea that we talk about in the book a little bit that the focus on money as a, an input into the electoral production function, if you will, into in terms of election outcomes, right, ignores or or puts aside all of the other resources that a candidate can bring to bear in a campaign. Uh, that could advantage or disadvantage certain kinds of candidates. Um, uh, you know, I especially um, in an era of uh, s small donors being more influential now in the last last five ten years. Um, you know, I I, I I do think that a campaign that that money can be consistent with a populist message. I mean, Bernie Sanders um, was was expert at raising uh, raising small dollars. Lots of campaign finance or lots of lots of campaign dollars from small donors. Uh, and so, you know, the, there is a way to harness that populism uh, in the in the money and politics system. But I, I take your point that, you know, if you restrict money in the political system, well, then where do you stop restricting in terms of resources right. in order to achieve your desired outcome? Do you say all of a sudden that volunteers need to be limited to a certain number of hours per week so that everybody's in a level playing field? Uh, do you uh, do you start limiting the amount of time that a candidate can be covered on TV again for fear that one candidate or another is going to have an advantage? Once you once you move down, once you move in the direction of thinking we need to have some sort of a quality of, of inputs into the electoral system, well, then you've got to focus on all of the inputs. Um, and inevitably, you're leading down the road to uh, to to taking away uh, fundamental speech rights um, in all sorts of ways. Jeff? Any so so adding to this point on on populism, and you know the reference to Trump versus Clinton uh, brings to mind that um, uh, Hillary Clinton made it really a central platform that she would uh, do everything in her power to reverse Citizens United. Uh, some people may remember uh, she would do everything in her power except campaign in Wisconsin. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know that is an example of you know sort of politicians, much like reformers sort of demagoguing the issue of money and politics, taking advantage of this kind of, you know, the public's, what I would describe as, as ignorant and overly cynical um, view of money and politics and, and demagoguing the issue um, and trying to, um, you know, and then policy becomes based on uh, these sort of, you know, chimerical notions of, of uh, corruption and the swamp and we've got to do something rather than based on, you know, what science tells us would be effective public policies. And I will note even, you know, we were sort of, you know, I don't want to be denigrating all reformers. One of the most ardent pro-reform advocates, Rick Hassan, a uh, prominent legal scholar, has argued um, that the focus of the reform movement on campaign finance reform as an anti-corruption tool is it's kind of a losing argument. Uh, it's not backed up by science, and it, and it's a distraction 
from what uh, he and some other scholars think is more important, which would be to focus on political equality. Um, so I want to return to uh, the science part, which is really, I mean, this book is really the main focus there is on those two questions I mentioned about elections and about public opinion. Uh, but David, why don't campaign finance reforms work as advertised? It seems intuitive to many people listening to us, to, watching us today, and certainly many people uh, in, in the country that limiting the size of contributions in the systems or giving voters the ability to contribute to public financing will give more people confidence in the system and will generally improve the system. I think you found that that's not necessarily true. Why? Why? One of the reasons that that Jeff and I undertook this research is because for for 40 years, since 1970, over 40 years, since 1976, the Supreme Court has held that the only justification under the on given the First Amendment for restricting campaign contributions is to prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption. Uh, and so they the, the court made a claim in that decision that um, you know that it was self-evident, basically, that 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 contributions could create the appearance of corruption, and therefore uh, the government has a, a legitimate justification for restricting contributions. Um, but that's an empirical claim that the court was making, but it was asserted as though, right, it was simply uh, an assumption or, or a fact to be taken on, uh, taken for granted, taken on faith. Um, and so Jeff and I wanted to look into the empirical evidence about the relationship between campaign finance restrictions and the appearance of corruption or trust in government. Um, and that really is the heart of uh, the, the heart of the book is sort of creating sort of a portrait of what the American public thinks about money in politics, and then seeing whether or how law changing laws, can adjust that thinking about the process. Um, and again, our focus here is, is to actually bring science to an area that, uh, that for too long has been, uh, at least in the public square, has been sort of free of, of scientific inquiry. Just these claims about the appearance of corruption and campaign finance are made um, as though they're, they're transparently obvious. Um, Nancy Pelosi has made them in the wake of in, in introducing HR1, Lots of other politicians have made these claims uh, in proposing campaign finance laws. And again, what we find is when you look at changes in campaign finance laws in the U.S. states over a 30-plus year period, we find um, no evidence that stricter campaign finance laws have any effect on how the public views um, views government. Um, and that's true whether you're looking at restrictions on corporations, restrictions on uh, individuals, uh, public the implementation of these public financing systems that are now gaining a lot of attention thanks to HR1 in, in the US House. Simply no evidence. Um, now, you could you could quibble and say, well, you know, maybe if they had done the test differently, they would have found something different. You know, maybe they, you know, maybe they just they just cooked the books. No, we try, you know, we we did a number of robustness checks because we knew that the public and, and, and others would be skeptical of these findings. They'd be skeptical of our skepticism as we write in the book. And and we just could find mm -hmm. no way to right, show 
that that there was going to be some some positive effects. So we, we we really tried to give the benefit of the doubt to this assumption because it is so ingrained um, in, in in the popular mind and in the court's mind. Um, and simply, right, the evidence just simply is not there. So if I can jump in yeah. here, um, you know, so so Dave's absolutely right about the results. I mean, there is nothing going on in terms of the relationship between state campaign finance laws and trust and confidence in state government. But, um, uh, you know, still people might ask, well, why is that? And, and this is where we started our conversation today. It's where we start the book. It's because the world doesn't work the way reform advocates think it does. Money is not the driving force that it's often portrayed. And therefore, once you understand that, once you understand the scientific literature that actually examines what are the treatment effects of campaign spending, what are the treatment effects of campaign contributions and lobbying, you know, what actually happens when you implement reform? Does it make races more competitive? Not really. Uh, so, you know, once you understand that, now it's not so surprising at all. What's surprising is how has the general public been so misinformed for so long? And, and you know, both Dave and I feel like there's, uh, there's a public service obligation for scholars like us to be trying to explain people that, uh, you know, American politics is not as rotten as you think. And, and importantly, we don't need to sacrifice our cherished, until recently, First Amendment freedoms uh, in order to sort of, you know, right the ship and, uh, and, and that the situation is not so dire. And what's amazing to me is some people react to that as, you know, they get mad. They really want things to be bad. And, uh, you know, but I, I'm sorry, I guess we're just happy warriors. Well, there's a desire for uh, solutions that to dissatisfaction. I want to address a question that has come up uh, in the in the uh, questions area that is very, very common. I'm going to answer it and then uh, see if you guys in your research have found anything to add to it. The question from Robert Ball and Taffy Gould goes to the question of why can't uh, state elections be limited to people who live inside a state. You hear this very often, and particularly during highly contested state elections. Uh, Mr. Ball also notes that George Soros, a large Democratic contributor, um, has uh, spent a lot of money on attorney general, general races in the states. Now, my sense is that uh, the right to contribute uh, as protected is a national right. And so states uh, are bound by the, uh, you know, the national uh, supremacy clause in that regard. You can't limit rights that, is, that are a U.S. right first. But interestingly, uh, you, there have been these maps uh, showing where contributors live, and they do show that geographically uh, contributors tend to be quite concentrated into perhaps uh, maybe 10 places or more, maybe a dozen places throughout the country. But if you limited uh, some of these states to in-state residents, wouldn't that uh, lead to less competition in state races because there would be less ability to get out arguments to support? Support candidates. Uh, am I correct about this, David? Do you think? 
Sounds like uh, maybe Dave. Excuse Locker. me, are you not hearing? So I was going to give Jeff the Sorry. chance to to take take the first stab. Uh, okay. Oh, there you go, Jeff. Jeff, what do you think? <laughs> so, I mean, this I mean, this deserves uh, a broadcast all by itself, really, because, um, you know, going back to this idea that that politics is messy, people are rationally ignorant. It takes resources and effort to try to organize groups, to try to educate people, to say, hey, here's a new way of doing things. Every new idea is a minority belief, and it takes effort to get that idea out there and to try to convince people of the efficacy of the idea. And so you need, just like in business, you need entrepreneurs who are going to create a Jamba Juice or a FedEx or what have you, a better way of doing things. In politics, you need political entrepreneurs, people that are, you know, you need patrons and political entrepreneurs. And so I know people on the right, Soros is, is kind of a, uh, a boogeyman, but, you know, I would argue that Soros on the left or Adelson on the right or the Kochs for the libertarians, these are patriots and they're political entrepreneurs. They're putting their money and their resources into trying to improve uh, the public debate. And so let's take the example of Soros's funding of attorneys generals um, and, 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 you know, trying to affect uh, criminal justice policy. And, you know, it wasn't just funding candidates. It was funding ideas, grants to university researchers to study, you know, what is the effect of militarizing police? What is the effect of uh, warehousing so many young men in prisons, and uh, you know, do we really need to have cash bail? And and so there's you know, along with the political campaigns, first comes this sort of attempt to to learn things about policy and the effects of policy, and it's it's all part of a bigger a bigger process. And so it's not so easy as to just say ah uh, that that out of state or dumped money into politics and it, it, uh, it affected the race and that shouldn't have happened. You know, uh, one of the benefits of living in a free society is that you have this marketplace of ideas and that there's a free exchange of arguments and evidence and we can create better public policies together rather than, you know, let's put a wall around Rhode Island and, and have Rhode Island for Rhode Islanders only. It's, it's fundamental, fundamentally contrary to an open society and to the American ideal. So we, your book is about, in part, experts. And as it happens, uh, we have at least one question from an expert, uh, Sam Garrett, who is a campaign finance scholar at the Congressional Research Service and therefore informs Congress about uh, many of the laws and scholarship done, has the following question. What, if anything, does your research suggest about how technically knowledgeable the public is about campaign finance regulation? For example, understanding contributions versus expenditures or understanding that corporations cannot make federal treasury contributions and so on. Thanks, he says. What about that? It's an interesting question. David? It's a, it's a, it's a great question and it's an, it, it takes up an entire chapter of our, of our book. 
which just to preview what we find is called the uninformed public. Um, and the, the, you know, we asked Americans over a period of two years, uh, a set of basic questions about campaign finance laws. Um, we didn't try to trick them. We didn't ask some obscure questions, very basic questions, um, such as, right. Is it, is it legal for corporations to make contributions to federal candidates, uh, directly out of their corporate treasury? Um, you know, you know, what, what sorts of disclosure information are required, um, when you make campaign contributions and so on. Um, and the public, did no better uh, than uh, than random chance. Um, so the the Wall Street Journal used to famously, you know, have monkeys throw darts at uh, at stock pages and say, "Look, the monkeys do do just as well as the professional stock pickers." Um, and there's sort of an analogy here, right? You could have had uh, you could have had some some monkeys throwing darts at our at our quiz. Uh, and they would have done in expectation just as well as the average member of the public. And, you know, you might think, well, you know, most members of the public don't pay attention to campaign finance. Suppose you looked at the most educated slice of our population, the people most engaged with politics, and still um, you're, you're, you're barely hovering around that, that 50% mark in terms of accuracy. Uh, the, the reality is that the American public is stunningly uh, unaware of campaign finance laws. Now, of course, right? You maybe don't blame them, right? People are busy; they have other things to do than be steeped in uh, the details of campaign finance laws. But here's the rub, right? This is one of the few policy areas where the Supreme Court has said what the public thinks about an issue affects whether or not a restriction on speech is justifiable. So the fact that the public is ignorant about campaign finance laws is worrisome if we're then going to look to public opinion about campaign finance as a basis for reform. What's more, once you uh, control for what the public knows, so, so the more the public is aware of campaign finance contributions, or, or it, the less likely they are to want more restrictions. Uh, and so there is this sense, right, that perhaps if the public knew just how heavily restricted the system was, um, they wouldn't necessarily be as supportive of, of further reform. But there's, a, there's a vast amount of, of, of ignorance in the system. And that's really the, the, the foundation for what follows in our book. Uh, now, in fairness, you could argue, well, again, they don't need to know the details of public opinion, of, of campaign finance law to know that something's rotten when campaign contributions are made. Uh, but but the depth of the ignorance is is truly remarkable, uh, and it does I would argue feed into other perceptions of the system, and therefore is is relevant. Anything further, Jeff? Uh, yeah. So so picking up on that idea that people, you know, maybe they don't have to be informed about the details of laws to know something is rotten, and it is true that that large majorities of the American public think that there's a lot of corruption in government, et cetera. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. It often is portrayed as a bad thing, but you could view cynicism and distrust of government as an important check on government abuses. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and really the American pastime is not baseball, especially when the Cardinals aren't doing well, but the American pastime is complaining about politicians. And, and so there's this healthy cynicism, I think, and, and mistrust of government um, and that, that isn't really caused by money in politics. It's caused more by 
a mistrust of people in authority. And and another you know element of our book is to, is we really dig down into why is it that people think politics is corrupt? Well, it turns out they mistrust pretty much everything politicians do. They mistrust everything the other party does if they're partisans, and they really distrust you know corporations. And uh, there's there's a number of people who distrust unions too. So it, it's not about the money in politics. Parties and party competition and political compromise aren't going to go away if you have campaign finance uh, reform. As it happens, we have a question from a guy that I, I know and a friend who spent, uh, as he says, 30 years working on campaign finance issues, uh, particularly with regard to Congress. Uh, I'm talking about Steve Stockmeyer. Steve uh, says, I, one impression I had during those 30 years was that campaign money was more a function of extortion than a bribery, especially with incumbents. Uh, quote, please, the incumbents were saying, please stop me uh, before I fundraise again, unquote. Did you run across this notion of extortion as opposed to bribery in your research? Uh, thanks for the questions, Steve. I, I, I'm going to jump David, in on that one. You extortion? You know, OK, Jeff. So you know, there's no better way for a politician who has lost his election to get back in the spotlight and to get attention than to say, you know, here's what I observed and everything that's wrong with things and 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 taking on that role of the, the demagogue. So a lot of those arguments come from those kinds of sources. But you know, we're not we're not testing, and the literature doesn't test bribery per se. It's the relationship between contributors and candidates or contributors and policy. So whichever way you think that causality is flowing, there's a lot less evidence that money in politics is as determinative of policy outcomes as, as people, uh, many people think. Uh, John Alcorn of uh, Connecticut has a, an additional question. It's an interesting, he says, please address this paradox. If money makes little difference to campaign outcomes, then why do donors give candidates money? Do donors labor under the same misconceptions as public opinion does about campaign finance? David or Jeff? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. And it's one that political scientists have, uh, have studied. Uh, so the, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of ways to answer this question. The, uh, one, the, the sort of the, the most straightforward way to answer the question is to say that for many people, donations are uh, a way to simply be involved with the political system that the donors are not giving with the expectation of getting anything in return. They're giving because they'd like to go to a fundraiser and they'd like to meet the politician and, uh, and talk with other people who are interested in politics. Uh, many people give because they're asked by somebody else to give. Uh, and so for, for many people, this is a form of what economists would call consumption rather than, than investment. They're, they're doing it because they enjoy the process of being involved in the political system, the same way that some, some, some people might go to a protest uh, even though at the margin, right, their presence at the protest isn't going to change anything, right? somebody might right, write a check because they believe that they they, they want to go to this fundraiser and enjoy the process of being at um, being at the fundraiser. Um, in other cases, uh, the, you know, donors give this this money because perhaps they think it's going to help them secure access. 
Uh, so if you go to a fundraiser and you're able to talk to a member of Congress for a couple of minutes and make a pitch for an issue that's important to you, um, that could be a way to sort of sort of get in the door and if you don't believe you could otherwise get in the door. Uh, it, it is certainly some contributors believe that they are going to get some return on their investment from a campaign contribution. Uh, but I think for, for most donors, that is not the motivation for, for giving. They simply have other, um, they simply have other motivations for giving. Now, if you're talking about somebody like Michael Bloomberg spending a billion dollars, right? He, he must have thought he was going to get something in return for donating a billion dollars to his own campaign, right? Um, but even there, right, he may have thought what I want to do is highlight the issues that I think are important that I want other Democrats or even Republicans to focus on as a way to draw attention to those issues. So there could be all sorts of reasons for giving money that aren't about simply uh, securing a specific policy, um, securing a specific policy benefit. Well, there's also politics in the sense that uh, I think with Bloomberg at the time he entered, didn't he believe that uh, uh, Senator Warren or somebody that was going to lose to Donald Trump uh, was going to be the nominee, and he wanted to head that off. Uh, and Jeff, what do you think? So, uh, I mean, Dave's analogy to, you know, participating in a protest or giving to charity is a good one. You know, people do all kinds of things because they want to support a cause that they that they believe in. And so I think one thing we should make clear is, is Dave and I and other scholars of money and politics, we're not saying that money doesn't matter at all in politics. Uh, you know, if I were to run for dog catcher here locally and didn't spend any money, I, I might get two votes. If I spent a lot of money, I might get 12 votes. That's a big effect. I still lose. Uh, you know, so we're talking about at the margin in professional campaigns and also the other important point is money is important. Campaign resources are important. Interest groups are important. But a better view of the world is that, you know, take at the national level, there are two teams out there. There's the red team and the blue team. And there are groups that are aligned with one or the other. And they're like-minded and they're supporting each other. And that is politics in action. It's not this kind of transactional. An interest group comes out of nowhere and if only they give a few dollars to somebody, they're going to get a tax break. There's, there's, you know, that notion is just not supported by the social science literature, but it is, it's that notion that drives a lot of the proposals for campaign finance reform. And, it, and to the detriment of better ideas, like maybe we want to encourage small donors or contributions that flow through political parties um, and and to you know change politics that way well that's an interesting point Jeff because we had uh, other questions that uh, went to the issue of small donors and public financing that encourages small donors perhaps through tax credits uh, is there evidence what is the evidence there on those kinds of proposals David We've, you know, yep. these have been these have been tried in several states. Uh, the evidence we have in our book shows that they do not move the needle on trust in government. Um, the evidence on the effects on competitiveness and turnout are similarly sort of muddled. Um, there's really not a lot. It, it might change at best who runs for office, 
but there, there's not a lot of evidence that's going to have a sea change. This is going to lead to a sea change in uh, in the outcomes of, uh, of of elections or the way in which people perceive the process, uh, in part because, again, public funding deals with just one little slice of the political system. It doesn't change, right, contrary to what reformers promised it would do. It doesn't change the ways in which politics uh, is is done. Um, in fact, you know, if if you look at institutional reforms that are designed to try to you know make politics fit more like this romantic view. So for for those in the Cato audience, term limits, right, has always been a favorite uh, among especially um, libertarians um, that we need term limits uh, in order to to constantly cycle through elected officials, but. Best evidence is that term limits can have lots of perverse consequences, including giving more power uh, potentially to interest groups or to lobbyists or to staff members. Uh, and so there's there's you know the 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 history of reform is sort of littered with lots of great expectations, but not a lot of uh, not a lot of output. And I know we're short on time, so I'll just leave the audience with this. If you're still skeptical that money sort of drives everything in politics and that interest groups and corporations can simply buy the outcomes they want, Take a look at what's happening to Google and Facebook and Apple right now. If they could really buy their way out of this, right, they would have tried to do so by now, right? Politics is about a lot more than simply who's got the most money. Jeff, would you like to uh, close on and leave some, the audience with a, a thought? Well, I'll, I'll echo that point, which is there's a very famous study um, done by uh, our good friend Stephen Solovahair and uh, and uh, uh, Jim Snyder and uh, De Fuerto. Uh, the title is Why So Little Money in U.S. Politics? And really the theme is one in which many scholars have commented on in order to try to debunk that public conventional wisdom about money and politics as if, 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 interest groups really could buy policy, you'd expect a lot more money to be flowing into politics. And again, for, for years, uh, we and others have made the argument that that's just not what we see. So our book today for our book forum has been Campaign Finance and American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters with David Primo and Jeff Milo. Uh, we appreciate very much everyone who attended. There's a lot of interest in this, and there were a lot of good questions. Unfortunately, I couldn't get to all of them, as is so often the case. Uh, we tried to group them and so on. Uh, but meanwhile, this will be available. You can come back to it. You can buy the book, and many of the answers to your questions will be there. Uh, but we appreciate uh, your attendance today, and we wish David and Jeff the best with this book, a very interesting social scientific look at uh, public issues that uh, too rarely get that. Thanks.